Oh God, great is your faithfulness. The light never goes out with you. We cannot extinguish the candle of your love and your grace. That faithfulness that comes back over and over and over again. We are much in worship with you right now. We're not pausing. You just keep it going. The Word now summons us. Open our minds, please. Let us think clearly now. We want to know about these lampstands and your posture towards us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we continue to worship. Amen. A protesting student was carrying a placard, moving it around. Jesus, yes. Church, no. You know, given everything we've been hearing about the church these days, you really can't be too hard on that student or the message of the placard. You want to talk about the hemorrhaging scandal within the Roman Catholic Church? Front and center headline story. The media have been running that over and over and over again. And of course, we know in our heart of hearts that Rome has no corner on struggles for morality among the clergy or among the laity. Jesus, yes. Church, no. Stephen C. Neal put his finger on it when he wrote these words, Nothing in the contemporary scene is more striking than the general regard which is felt for Jesus Christ and the general dislike of the organized church which bears His name. Jesus, yes! Church, no. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put his finger on the pulse of society, the society of his day, when he ruefully described why it is we're getting that Jesus, yes, church, no reaction even today. Kierkegaard wrote these words, Whereas Christ turned the water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. It has turned the wine into water. Jesus, yes. Church, no. Malcolm Muggridge, you remember him? Acclaimed critic, journalist from England. Some of you are from England, of course, jolly old England. He is now deceased, but before he died, that agnostic, his heart captured by the Lord Jesus Christ. He became a believer. Uh, Muggridge, with his inimitable style, provided this prickly analysis of the church in England I don't think this is only true of England, however. Perhaps it applies to the church on these shores as well. Let me read this to you. Malcolm Muggridge, in an average English village today, Anglican worship has become little more than a dying bourgeois cult. A small cluster of motor cars may be seen outside the parish church when a service is in progress. The bells still ring joyously across the fields and meadows on Sunday mornings and evenings, but fewer and fewer heed them, and those few predominantly middle-class female and elderly. Hmm. It must be desperately disheartening. And the incumbent, often the preacher, gives the impression of being dispirited and forlorn. Whatever zeal he may have had as an ordinant when he joined the ministry soon gets dissipated in an atmosphere of domestic care and indifference on the part of his flock. Small wonder then that in the pulpit he has little to say except to repeat the old traditional clerical banalities as invariable as jokes in punch. Punch would be the equivalent of Life magazine. Sometimes, in deference to the 20th century, lacing, this is something, lacing the sad brew with references to the United Nations apartheid and the birth control pill. He doubtless feels himself to be redundant. Who needs me? 
The villagers stoically die without his ministrations. They would resent any interruption of their evening telly, television watching, if he ventured to make a call and have for long accustomed themselves to cope without benefit of clergy with minor misfortunes like pregnancy and delinquency. In the large cities, the situation is not dissimilar, end quote. Jesus, yes. Church, no. Is it any different in this country? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe yes, maybe no. I was reading American Demographic magazine this last week, and we all now know the numbers. The post-September 11 spike in American church attendance has now gone back down to life as usual. And we have been reminded that the church might be good in a time of crises, but otherwise the church cannot capture the mind or the heart of the nation. Jesus, yes, church, no. So what are we going to do, ladies and gentlemen? Come on, we're church. This is church. Shall we just roll over the poor, hapless church? Shall we roll over and die? Jesus, yes, church, no, we quit. Well, before we let that student placard define our future, we need to take a look at the next face of Jesus in the apocalypse. We've been going to the face of Christ all this year. Here we come to the sixth face of Jesus. We need to take a long look into the face we are about to see. Ready to check out on the church. Ready to write it off. Hold, hold, hold on. Wait for one more face. When Karen and I were in, uh, in Australia once upon a time, we went, wanted to go see the Great Barrier Reef. And so on, on the way out to the reef, on the boat, we were given instructions for a little bit of scuba diving. We were given 30 minutes of instructions so that we could do it. A young Israeli emigrated to Australia. He was our instructor and he told us, let me tell you something, when I get underwater with you, I want you, when you see me do this, when I put my fingers in my eyes up to the glass, I mean, don't look anywhere but straight into my eyes. Look at me. Look at me. Jesus, perhaps would stand in our midst today and say, hey, hey, look at me. Watch me now. Want to know about the church? Jesus, yes, church, no. Watch me. Watch me. All right. The revealing part six, the candlestick face. Let's go to it one last time. Wow, have we been in Revelation 1 forever or what? One last time, Revelation chapter 1. Would you turn there, please, in the Bible you have? You didn't bring a Bible. There's one in the pew in front of you. Don't want to read from that? And you can read on the screen. One way or the other, we're going to put the Word of God in your face. Revelation. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know it doesn't go over great with a very independent audience like this. But I tried it. Okay, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We pick it up one last time before we sail out of the, the calm and placid harbor of Revelation 1. Oh my, if you're anywhere on earth besides in this building next Sabbath, you're going to miss this. You're going to miss the experience of your life. The other face on the throne. My worship team has been working on this particular Sabbath for weeks now. You come next week. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I'm in the New Living Translation. I am John, this is the writer speaking, I am John, your brother, 
In Jesus, we are partners in suffering and in the kingdom and in patient endurance. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and speaking about Jesus. Verse 10, it was the Lord's day. Okay, Dwight, which day was that? Well, since you asked, let me just tell you, there is only one day in the scripture that God is called the Lord of. He's Lord of every day. But the day he calls the Lord's day, Mark 2:28, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. There isn't a scholar alive worth his salt who will tell you the Lord's day is any other day of the week but the seventh day Sabbath. Everybody in the New Testament knew it was the Lord's day. John is in worship on the seventh day Sabbath. On the island of Patmos, and while I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, I was worshiping, and suddenly, oh, watch this, suddenly I heard a loud voice behind me, a voice that sounded like a trumpet blast, and it said, write down what you see, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Samaria, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Do you know what, ladies and gentlemen, this elderly pastor, because he is as old as the hills, this elderly pastor... See, John hears, he hears these seven names of seven churches. John does not even have to whirl around. What's up with that? He doesn't have to whirl around. To, he, he, remember, he still does not know who's behind him. In the Greek, it's megalephone. From whence comes our English word megaphone? I heard a megaphone. So it's not like this little whisper, John. It is a boom. He comes up off that rock. He hasn't even looked around yet, but he already knows the seven churches. Do you know why John knows these seven churches? In fact, John knows these seven churches like the back of his venous and wrinkled hand. John knows because he's the pastor of the seven. This is his church district. This is Pastor John. He knows the seven churches. And in fact, let's do this. Let's put a map on the screen. I want to put a map on the screen for you. And I'm going to point out to you where Patmos is. Put a little circle, please, around Patmos. See, there's Patmos. Penal colony. Roman prison. He's held on that island, incarcerated. Now, John knows, old man, even though his, his vision is dimming, he knows that if he looks off toward the east, the northeast, even in the gloom, the gathering gloom of another night, over that mist, there is his homeland. And he knows, because he's senior pastor of the Ephesus church. That's kind of his home base. So put a circle around Ephesus. And he knows that if you were going to take a letter, you would go first to Ephesus. Then you would go up the road to Smyrna, about 30 to uh, 40 miles. Then you would go up the road to Pergamum. You say, Dwight, where are you learning all this? I've read Ronko Stefanovich's commentary. See, this map is straight out of his commentary. See, you've got to read good books to learn good things. All right, so you go up to Pergamum, then the road starts coming south towards Thyatira, and then it drops south, another 30 miles to Sardis, then a little bit to the... Uh, it just keeps going, that road. <laughs> you got to get the right map, folks. The devil does not want this on tape, but the good news is, don't you worry about it, because we had a great first service. Great first service. And it worked. We got it all on tape, so don't feel bad. So then you go down to uh, Philadelphia, and then if you go a little further to the south and the east, you come to Laodicea, and when you're through Laodicea, that's the end of his district. He's got seven churches in his district, so he comes back to Ephesus again. Now, Ranko, I'm going to quote him. It appears that the order of the seven churches, watch this, take a look at these lamps, also reflects the position of lamps of a seven-branched lampstand or a menorah. Each lamp on one side of the lampstand corresponds to its parallel on the opposite side. It seems that the seven messages function exactly in such a way. Watch this. So that you have the, the letter to the church in Ephesus right here. Okay? But uh, Ranko is pointing out, this is fascinating, I never knew this. 
that the letter to Ephesus actually matches the letter... What's the last one? Come on. Last one? Laodicea. Right. So that these letters are very similar. And he's right. They both speak of lovelessness and legalism. Their letters match. Then you come to Smyrna and Philadelphia. And lo and behold, they're the only two churches who get a letter with no condemnation. Wow, very nice. And then you come, you come to Sardis and Pergamum, and guess what? They're the only two churches who, who get no commendation and only condemnation. You come to the fourth church, it has no match. It's the longest letter of all seven, Thyatira. So that if you look at the map, it even looks like a menorah when you look at the map. Geographically, experientially, God is saying something about the arrangement of these seven churches. Fascinating. And here's the question. Okay, where is Christ in the middle of the, you know, menagerie of churches? Because you got every stripe and color and hue and size in those seven. Where is Christ? Let's find out. Read on. Let's pick it up here in verse, verse 12. The stirring truth. Get ready for this. Oh, I love this. I love it. We don't need PowerPoint to even do this in videos. It's so powerful. Watch this. Verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were bright like the flames of fire. Verse 15. His feet were as bright as bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves that are breaking at the, uh, on the very beach of Patmos. He held, verse 16, seven stars in his right hand. Remember the right hand? In his right hand. And, his, and, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was as bright as the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one who died. Look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Hit the pause button right there. If you were not here last week, you have got to get last week's teaching. I wish that you would go to our website. Put it on the screen for you, pmchurch.org. Go to our website and click Part 5 in the revealing. Part 5, incredible message about the keys to the grave. You've got to hear that if you missed it last week. Now, let's pick it up here. Uh, verse 19. Okay, the boy, Jesus. Now, John knows who it is. It's, it's the resurrected and ascended Christ. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen later. Verse 20. This is the meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What are the seven Seven lampstands, what are they? They are the seven churches. And where is Jesus in relation to the seven churches? Verse 13, what did we just read? And standing in the middle of the lampstands, I saw him there. There he was. Which being interpreted, ladies and gentlemen, means this. If you're looking for Jesus, you will always find him standing in the middle of the church. You're looking for Jesus? Looking for Jesus in your life? Want to find Jesus? I know where He is. You just found out where He is. That's where He is. In fact, Jesus is so big on the church 
that he actually describes, when Jesus gets to describing what he's doing, he doesn't even take John's word for it. He says, no, 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 no. I want to tell you something. With me, it's a completely different posture. John says, I'm standing. I want to tell you the truth about me. There's a whole dimension of leadership literature today that is studying what makes successful leaders successful. CEOs of large companies, CEOs of large institutions or organizations or, or, or bodies. What makes them successful? And you know what they found out? The most successful, the most successful leaders practice what they call MBWA. Let's put it on the screen. MBWA, management by wandering around. That's what they found out. Successful leaders wander around. They wander all over their business, all over their organization, wandering around the business to see if the business is doing the business of the business. So the leader wanders around. He's with the customers. She's with the employees. She's wandering around. MBWA. And wouldn't you know it? When the living Christ describes his own posture in his church, he declares that I too practice MBWA. He wanders around. Want to read the words of Jesus? He gets it right into the very first letter that's going to go to Ephesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, here it comes. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. He walks. He doesn't stand. He's walking. Management by wandering around. He's examining. He's there in the midst of life. When it seems life is melting into nothing, He stands in that midst. He says, I know. I'm there. Management by wandering around. Which simply means that if you're looking for Jesus, I don't mind repeating it, you will always find Him in the middle of the church. Always. You say, Dwight, which church? <laughs> well, it really doesn't matter which church you're talking about. Big church, little church, rich church, poor church, educated church, illiterate church, good church, bad church, first world, third world. My church, your, your church, it really doesn't matter. Any old church will do. Broken church, fixed church, light on church, light off church. It doesn't matter to him. You find him. MBWA, managing by walking around, even when we're not sure about the health of the church anymore. I mean, I don't know if I would be in that church. Lord, if I, uh, what they're going through right now, I wouldn't walk in that church if I were you. No, any church will do. You know, somebody wrote a parody once on the great hymn, Onward, Christian Soldiers. You know, like a mighty army moves the church of God. You know that one? Somebody wrote a parody. It goes like this. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are all divided, many bodies we, very strong on doctrine, weak on charity. Whoa! Even in a church like that, he walks around. He didn't say, he didn't give any qualifications. Read the seven letters. I mean, we're talking about a menagerie here, ladies and gentlemen. Doesn't matter. I'm in their midst. Revelation 2, verse 1, write the letter 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. It's precisely because Jesus practices MBWA, management by wandering around, that Jesus is able seven bold assertions to these seven Asian churches. An assertion of just two words. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 2. Ephes- uh, this is to the church in Ephesus, Re- Revelation 2, 2. I know, <laughs> I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work. I have seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You have discovered, oh my, I know, Jesus says, I know you. I mean, hey, did your parents ever do that to you? Did your folks, like mine did, did your folks ever walk up to you and say, Hey, listen, listen, boy, I want to tell you something. I know you like a book. I know you like a book. I know what you're thinking right now. Don't you quit thinking that thought right now, Dwight. Stop that. What do you mean you know what I'm thinking? I know what you're about to say. Hush up. Don't you say that. What is it about parents who say, I know you like a book? Come on, you don't know me. Yes, I do. Well, I suppose it's because parents hover over their children. They just, they've just they been hovering over their kids for so long, watching them like a hawk, knowing them like a book. When you love somebody and you hover over that someone, you really do get to know. You get to know. Uh, it, it's that way with couples. I, I remember when, when, when I first came. I was making some pastoral visits. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about couples. You know, couples can be married so long. That they just know each other like books. I went to visit... Do you, now you have to be an old timer. The Campbells, they used to be on this, on this campus. And, and he was director of the farm. And so I went to visit them soon, soon after we came. And I sat down with him and I asked him a question. He started to answer. And he got the first words out of his mouth. And whoosh, she took over and finished the sentence. So I said, well, obviously she's the spokesman in the family. So I asked her the next question. She started the answer. Whoosh, he took it over. You know what? It's just back and forth like this. Why? Because they've been so long with each other. When you love the one you're married to and you've been together that long, I tell you, you know each other like a book. And that's what Jesus is saying. I know you. I know you. I know you. Just like a book. Seven times he says it. I know you. I know you. He walks in the midst of the congregations. doesn't matter what he sees there. Some lights are on. Some lights are off. He says, that's okay. I know you. I know you. And by the way, it's not just that he knows the big church, capital C church. He knows the little C churches too. He knows the congregations. He has to. Because he's not going to tell you about seven churches. I know. He knows plural. So that means he knows he knows the village church. We're talking about our little community here. He knows the village church. I, I know him like the back of my hand. I know the All Nations Church. I know the Spanish Church. I know the Korean Church. I know the Lutheran Church. I know the Baptist Church. I know the Methodist Church. Come on, church is church. Doesn't matter the name in front of the building, for Pete's sake. I know them, but I know you. Pioneer. The church on the campus of Andrews University. I know you. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be kind of scary? I mean, to go to the mailbox. Go to the mailbox. You open the mailbox up and it says, To the church on the campus of Andrews University, Pioneer Memorial Church. And you look, well, who's this from? And you look up, you look up in the left-hand corner and it says, From Jesus. I mean, if Jesus wrote us a letter, he said, Hey, guys, I, I do know you. Do you know what? I walk through the dorm in the middle of the night. I walk through the campus in the middle of the day. I'm in your classrooms. I'm up and down the corridors. I'm in the administrative suites. When you're struggling over issues, I'm there. Do you know? I'm in your midst. I walk among you. I know you. I know you. I know you. 
I know you. And ladies and gentlemen, He really does. He knows us. Like nobody on earth knows us. And here's what's so amazing to me, is that He loves us anyway. In spite of what He knows, He loves us. I mean, He comes to the church in Ephesus, He says, oh boy, I know you. Oh, I know you, verse 2. I know all the things you do. I see your hard work. I see your patient endurance. I know you. And then he comes down here to, where is this, verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. I don't like that translation. What does yours say? I have this against you? Well, that's just as bad, isn't it? I mean, why doesn't he just say the nice things? When I'm, I sat down this, this week and I was just in my worship journal and I was trying to guess what kind of a letter Jesus would write to Pioneer. And so, I know you. I got, you know, and I got a huge list of all the good things about this church. Lord, you know this, you know this, do you know this, do you know this? But, you know, he says, he, he does it with all of them except two of them. He says, I, I know you, and, and hallelujah, but, you know, I, I, have this, I have this complaint against you. You know, the next time you feel like you've got a complaint against the church, you're in good company. You're in great company. Jesus has a complaint too. You know, I don't know what his complaint would be about us. Come on. What would it, I don't want to even think about it. I know you. I know you and blank. You know, I don't know how we would fill that in. I know you're... I don't know how he would fill that in. I know that you're like this. I don't know. You know, sometimes... I'm going to be honest with you. There's sometimes when I get discouraged. I, I get a little frustrated with the church. You know, I, I just wonder... God, why is this church so slow? You know, I mean, what is there about the church? It must be our leaders. That must be the problem with the church. It's the leaders. You know, like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. That kind of, you know, just, just going in circles. What's, what's up with that? I get frustrated with the church sometimes. You know, I say, the church, is all the hypocrisy in the church. Does that bother you too? Hypocrisy. Duplicity. You know, lethargy. I mean, you know, Jesus kind of said, Hey, guys, September 11, you know, things good, you know. We, of course, what, whatever you wish. And I think, man, lethargy in the face of a wake-up call, second to none for this generation. You know, I, I, sometimes I get so frustrated with the realization of what's wrong with the church because I realize it's me. I'm the one that's wrong with the church. The problem is mine. I know you. I know you. You know, the next time you feel like really ragging on the church, you got good company. Jesus said, I have a complaint too. But the next time you feel like really letting it go, letting it loose, would you go, would you go to the sixth face of Jesus and do this? Look into his eyes, the eyes that are shining out of the fire. Look full in his face because I want you to know that in the sixth face of Jesus, this is the picture that emerges, a very high view of the church. And here it is. No matter how you would fill in that blank, I know you, I know your, mm, no matter how you fill in that blank, this is true. That for Jesus, the most prized and precious possession of His on earth is the church, your church and my church, any church, it's His church. It's a very, very high view of the church. And I know that for postmoderns, third millennial, postmoderns, we are really, we are into privatization. I mean, come on, you know, you have your, you know, what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me, and as long as we're all happy, who cares? Hold it. Time out. 
the, the high view the apocalypse has of the church of Jesus Christ means that our contemporary tendency toward the privatization of religion is both wrong-headed and mistaken. I don't need the church. I, I listen on the radio. I don't need the church. I, I just find a little quiet corner in the forest. Just me and Jesus, mister, like that old poem. Just me and Jesus. That's the church I need. I'm telling you what, my friend, you're wrong. You say, well, listen, that's not only that I don't need the church. I don't want the church. Take that. I don't want the church. I don't want people telling me how to live. I don't want heaven to be accountable to a community. I don't want the church. In fact, you know what, Dwight? I don't like the church. You know what they did to somebody once that I loved? I wouldn't give them the time of day. I don't like the church. You know, guys, Jesus has a complaint about the church, too. But be very careful about ever saying, I don't need the church. Because listen to me carefully. It is the one place on earth where you can always be sure you can find Jesus anytime, night or day. Broken and bad, no matter. He is always in the church. You say, oh, do I don't believe that? Okay, fine. You don't have to take my word for it. Why don't you take Jesus' word for it? Let's put the word on the screen. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name. Please note, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus does not say, Where there are two or three of you, I'm going to be there. No, 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 no. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. The community comes together in faith. That's where I am. By the way, just add 10 to Matthew 18.20 and you have Matthew 28.20. What did Jesus say? And be sure of this, I am with you always. By the way, I am in the church always to the very end of the age. We have tended to privatize religion, worship and church to the detriment of the American community of faith. Here's how we do it in America. If we don't like the worship style, we leave. If we don't like the members, we leave. If we don't like the preacher, we leave. If we don't like getting out of bed in the morning, we stay in bed. We don't. It's just the church. We have so privatized religion and faith and worship today that we have mistakenly concluded, look, all you need is me and I and God, just the two of us, and we've got it wrong, wrong, wrong. The compelling portrayal of the risen Christ walking amongst His churches on earth, ought to be evidentiary proof enough that it is only in community with fellow sinners who drive us crazy because they keep reminding us about ourselves. Only in community with fellow sinners is the church drawn into the very intimacy and presence of Christ that we are purportedly seeking in the first place. Dwight L. Moody the great American evangelist was one, one night <clears throat> was visiting with a businessman friend of his. They're sitting by a roaring fireplace and the businessman has said, Moody, I want to tell you something, my man. I want to tell you, I don't need the church. I don't have to go to the church you know, once a week. What is this? I, don't, I worship God every day. I don't need the church. Prove to me that I need the church. Moody never said a word. He just quietly reached over to the tongs Beside that roaring fire, he took the tongs up, he reached into the fireplace, got a hold of a red-hot coal, dragged it out, and left it on the stone hearth. He never said a word. Curious, his businessman friend looks at the 
red-hot ember, and as in silence they stare, that fiery orange peace slowly begins to turn darker and darker and darker until finally in a last gasp of smoke, it goes out just a dead, cold piece of coal. Question answered. Privatize faith, privatize religion, privatize worship, privatize Christianity. You want to call it privatized Adventism? Let me tell you something, my friend. Privatized anything when it comes to the church is a futile effort to keep the flame burning when, in fact, the ember is dying. And the next time, mark these words, the next time you come to someone and that someone says to you, you don't need the church, come with me. The moment they speak of that privatization, you can be certain that inside that heart, the coal is already going out. The very high view of the church in the Bible's last book. You can reject it, but your problem is with Jesus, not with me. Verse 12, when I turned, of chapter 1, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was the Son of Man. Mark it down, the life of Christ is bound up in the community of the church, for in the heart of the church is Jesus, and in the heart of Jesus is the church. I have never read more powerful, affirming words for this high view of the church in my life, say for this sentence. I'm going to put the sentence on the screen now in closing. One sentence there. You will not come to a higher ecclesiology for the third millennium than this sentence. I put it on the screen for you. A sentence, by the way, written exactly a century ago this year. All right, here is the sentence. We should remember... That the church, enfeebled and defective though it be, messed up like I am, okay? We should remember that the church, enfeebled and defective though it be, is the only object on earth in which, on which Christ bestows His supreme, you can't get higher than supreme, His supreme regard. It is the purchase of His blood. You see this cross? It is the purchase of His blood, the divine Son of God is seen walking amid the golden candlesticks. Ladies and gentlemen, please note as you leave, there is a placard in the apocalypse and it goes like this. Jesus, yes. Church, no. No, 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 no. It does not go like that. It goes like this. Jesus, yes. Church, yes. Weak and defective though you and I are. Jesus, yes. Church, yes. For in the heart of the church is Jesus. And in the heart of Jesus is the church. Which means that if you are looking for Jesus, go to church. Go to church. Oh God, do not let us lose this face. In moments of uncertainty that may yet come, in days of trouble that may yet descend upon us,
Holy God, please, may we ever remember that in the midst of this church on earth, there we shall always find Jesus. Don't let us give up on the church, for Jesus has not given up on us. Keep us, Father, please. Keep us beside Him in the church until He comes. And now glory be to God. By His mighty power at work within us, He is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. May He be given glory in the church through Christ Jesus forever and ever through endless ages. Amen.